Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours, as it is, in fact, every week. Today's guest is an old friend, actually, whose work I really find fascinating and interesting. He's a, quite a self-effacing chap, but he's made some amazingly successful records. Uh, and we've had a long-term association because we think kind of both think kind of artistically and creatively similarly, I think. His name is Richard X. He's famous for uh, being a songwriter, a producer. He kind of was at the vanguard of the whole mashup thing that was going on and bootleg scene in the, well, in the, what was it, the 90s, I suppose. He's created hits for Annie, Kellis, Liberty X, Rachel Stevens, Sugar Babes, Girls on Top was his kind of band identity, I suppose. He quotes as his major influences the early Human League and Kraftwerk. We did an album, which he put out on his label. Uh, he, 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 uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in doing, uh, uh, releasing on vinyl, The Golden Hour of the Future. Well, that was my title, but basically the early Human League demos and the future um, stuff, which we did. And I'm glad we did, because it was really good. Yeah, he's he's got a good pop heart, as I mentioned in the actual interview. Um, this idea of combining two different famous songs into a new song is really interesting, I think. He did Our Friends Electric and Freak Like Me, for instance. The one that I was... Uh, I, how I originally met him was a combination of Bean Boiled uh, and... Uh, Bean Boiled and... What was it? Ain't Nobody. That's right. Um, he's a bit of an auteur, and, you know, I really admire his approach to everything. He's been very successful as a producer and songwriter as well. Here he is, the one and only Richard X. So what are you up to at the moment? Um starting to uh, I wouldn't say go back to normal but I, I live in a world of like when I'm not doing productions there's a lot of writing sessions and sort of people in rooms and um, you know trying to make things hopefully records um, and that often quite a lot of the stuff that I, is on my discography has probably come from those sessions originally so I'm just going back into a bit of that that's been sort of like knocked out of the world for the last couple of years um in, yeah. in real in real human terms so yeah just starting did one yesterday and just sort of then you kind of re-demo it or whatever and uh yeah so it's kind of that and there's a long-term uh, e uh sort of writing ep project that's just turned into an album which i'm not allowed to say who that's with but someone i've always liked <laughs> everybody's always nda nowadays honestly i yeah. don't know um tell us about Okay, I'm I'm, I'm going to dig deep into your past. I just want to know why you became the the kind of producer, writer, mashup artist, conceptualist, conceptualist. or that you've become. How and, did it uh, from from being young, basically? I think it's just like you know, uh, I've I've listened to a couple of podcasts, and I think it's a very familiar story for people of a sort of similar late thirties and a bit more age. You know, where you kind of like. 
at home listening to charts and picking up on the radio and things you saw on TV and theme tunes and you know that's like your first without thinking about it the music in your sort of area of you know when you're at home was there was always something on um, and like yourselves you know like things like the Doctor Who theme tunes and these sort of like science fiction kind of themes or epic themes or like those sort of sounds seem to be around when I started becoming conscious of that so it's you know like you're sort of interested in it like kids are interested in lots of different things and I was kind of interested in sound you know I had a cassette recorder and it, you know you could record off the radio and all that sort of stuff and also that's where you started recording your own things um, you know your, your own voice or people you knew mm. just just to mess around nothing no not necessarily music at that stage you know like when you're very small um so yeah just that's sort of like the grounding i suppose which um so you know, just so just for the listeners just to kind of because i've what i've discovered at done done nearly a hundred of these now is the the time when you're born and the time when you develop really mm. makes a major difference uh yeah. so how old are you I'm in my mid forties, I'd say. <laughs> Stop pretending you don't know. Yeah, so something like that. But yeah, so I remember like the end of the seventies, right. and I sort of I'm probably more like an eighties, you know, in terms of developing and throughout then. So right. um, uh, it, it's. I was thinking actually about your your music and like well, I was I was there's a sort of twenty year anniversary of some things I did coming up and around this time and. Um, and just by chatting about it and thinking back, I actually was looking at like the late eighties. The music of that was like a big part of probably what I did, which was basic dance music coming in mm, from mm. from that. But also, I was I think I was quite an odd teenager, or, or not quite teenager, because of like the league music, you, you, you know, your your eighties and late seventies music and things like Mute Records. I, I was looking at, I, I don't know how I quite got into it, but I was listening to this in like 88. Mm. And like that sort of, uh, I really got into that sort of early synth pop stuff, but like 10, 10 9, 10 years too late. In, well, not too late. It's never too well, late. Yeah. It was. I think that's the thing. It was like, and what led me there was probably like you know, you, when you're old enough, you go to record shops, you have some money in your pocket from your paper rounds, and you you able to limitlessly research those sort of precious items, find them in secondhand shops and stuff. So, but it's odd because that sort of culture that people younger people don't understand, like you, there wasn't really. There was, there was no internet, so you couldn't just find things. Yeah. You had to explore and you had to kind of. So that's, I'm kind of a, an odd mix, I think, maybe from my age of, um, you know, what my influences are, which are kind of outside. I mean, a lot of people pick up on music outside their age. But um, yeah, that's, and I think that the way that tied into like the, the dance music that kids of a little bit older than me were starting to make it was quite inspiring. So. Yeah, I think. Um... I was quite amazed when you first approached us, and um, I can't remember whether it was the mashup of Being Boiled and uh, Ain't Nobody mm. was the first time we met or con got into contact. I think that might have been it. And then you approached us to re to because you were a big fan of the early few the the kind of bootlegs actually yeah. of the early future uh, demos that we did. And 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 pre-human league, and you said, "Can I put them out?" And I'm going, "What? What? Why would anybody be interested in that shit?" Mm. 
And uh, I have to say, I take I claim credit for the golden era of the future, which is a great title, by the oh, way. Oh yes, that was yes, definitely you. And um, yeah, I think that was I was yeah. The first time was probably the clearance of the of the Liberty X song because I had actually used slightly illicitly being boiled on my first bootleg, which was um, being scrubbed. It was called which was. Um, being bored and TLC on one side, and on the other side was this Whitney Houston and Kraftwerk bootleg. Obviously, I was—I didn't really approach anyone for my, you know, three hundred run of, of singles. But actually, that the, the being bored sample morphed into the Liberty X one, and we were—we were all legitimate. So I probably met you around that time. But yeah, there was lots of things going on. I think there was just one—I knew the music because of the yeah record fairs would have. Was it called something like In Darkness? There was a bootleg that was kind of uh, a fan mm. favourite and there was things on that and there was things on cassettes. It was just a lot of the time it was, you'd go to a market or a record fair and, the, you you know, this is where you'd maybe see, I remember seeing uh, some of your early footage and some of the stuff that was on, like, Granada programmes and yeah. stuff, and that yeah. would be on a VHS tape. That That's you right. From a record fair. Um, and unless there was a retrospective on television, which was, you know, unlikely, um, that's that's you were sort of finding out, eking out these things. So, and now, of course, you, you know, you just have to type anything in. Pretty much everything is on YouTube. I told this story on one of the other podcasts, but it's a funny one anyway. We used to go to Europe because uh, all the time to do TV shows because we didn't perform live. So every time we went to Europe, as far as we were concerned, especially the ones that were going out live. It was never going to be seen ever again, A, ever again, and particularly in the UK. So we just did daft things all the time. <laughs> uh, and uh, and things that you, you'd be horrified if you thought it was ever going to be seen again. Like <laughs> we, we, we went to do, do a TV show in Rome and, and uh, we went to the Vatican and we, we bought lots of, um, lot, lot, lots of religious you know stuff like they they sell uh they sell um crucifixes by the pound you know little <laughs> ones so we just pin loads of these on our jackets and stuff we thought oh this is this is transgressive isn't it and uh and uh, stuff like that and somewhere on the internet i'm sure that's there anyway um getting off the topic um <laughs> i'll definitely be searching for that yeah absolutely but um what i suppose Back onto my favourite subject, me. Um, what was it about those early future tapes that appealed to you? Um, it was, it was. Uh, I think what caught my ear. So, uh, so Dare would have, should have been more in my ear than yeah, Travelog yeah. and Reproduction, but those by far are probably my still my favourite records. And there was moments on those that I heard sort of where it came from in the future. I think actually the first future thing was um, was on the EP, Dance Vision. Oh, uh, yes. was on like Holiday 80 or something like that. And I, I would have bought that. And then that would have led me probably like through a record shop or one of these record mm. fairs or like, the you know, there's a shop in Blackman I've mentioned before called Astonishing Sounds. And he was, Neil was really good with getting the money out of your pockets. So he'd he'd know like, you know, the mono being bought on then and then maybe he'd have a tape or maybe there'd be something like that. And and it was just I think it was that rawness which which appealed to me. And like also probably by the late eighties I would had my first little setup and you know some of the stuff you could do on a on an analogue with a little delay 
which was probably all you could afford, reminded me of that sort of stuff. You know, it was kind of like quite, I use basic in a very complimentary way here. It's probably quite basic and therefore, um, you know, some of the things that you were doing, like little chords made out of arpeggios, yeah. because it could only play. I could sort of work out by ear. Some of the things I was hearing in that were, um, you know, um, and, and there's a big, there's a big lump of sci-fi in, in the, in the, in the future stuff, which okay. kind of like, you know, it's like, yeah. And it's like the, the screaming in, um, <laughs> girls and all this stuff was very much like, you know, also BBC record and tapes, you know, you might get like a Doctor Who album, which is narrated and you get a bit of the radiophonic sounds in there you might get a bit of the you get the theme music but then you get tom baker's narrative i think there was genesis of the daleks and you get these little sound pieces because there's no visuals and you suddenly which was probably on screen you know some fantastic dalek march there'll just be this little 30 second piece of analogs and stuff and it's just you know it's very addictive there's something about the sound of it that's very addictive and it's and because it was all human it was all generally played or basic sequenced it, it, it does feel like it has that organic quality, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and then you just want more. So you you find it in odd places, you know. That's that once you kind of work out what it is you like, even like disco records or something that might have um, a moog on it or like space. You kind of want that electronic sound somewhere in what. It's a bit like the kind of theory of crate digging for Northern Soul addicts, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, Northern Electronic Soul, yeah. Yeah, I think at the time there was, um, I think it's probably gone further now. So things like Cold Wave and, you know, I'm not up on all that stuff. So people are digging into the the, the cassette tape heritage of the post, post-punk synth stuff and finding these, again, <laughs> these little gems, you know, that were in cassette compilations, never pressed on vinyl. And, you know, there was all that world of, demo magazines for people who didn't have record deals could compete in their old charts you know in a magazine on the back and it was like you sent in some there was some committee that voted on them and it's like why don't these people have record deals but they were making quite non-commercial music but um so yeah i think that the crate me digging mentality was um was a big part of it and i had that because i was a record buyer with my pocket money and places like Manchester were not that far away from where I grew up so that was like whoa there's you know there's 50 places that sold records at that time you know you yeah. just wandered around from one to the X next and that's probably where I got most of your music from originally yeah, yeah. so this is a very I, I mean what I want to kind of explore a little bit more is um it's you know, obviously, there's a big remix scene in the late 80s, and I know for a fact that record companies was, were probably spending more money on paying for remixes than they were on actually the original stuff that was being created and using oh. musicians and stuff, which always used to piss me right off, I have to say. Um, so you were coming into it, and you were obviously... How, how did Virgin kind of tap in? I mean, you signed for Virgin, right? Right. Yeah, um, I mean, there's probably like a the '90s is probably where I was doing behind the scenes stuff, working in studios and learning. Just because I was like interested in it, and I had by the time I'd left home, I had like a Atari ST, and I'd learned a bit of that stuff. And so through that, I was doing various making things for people and doing the odd thing myself, you know. But um, 
I was around musicians and people like that and inspired by people who were in groups, whether it was an indie group or doing kind of what I was doing, or there was a lot of, by the end of the late 90s, a lot of this um, intelligent uh, dance music and stuff like that. And a lot of that was being put out on Seven Inches. And, and by the time I'd gone through, the, I think I made my first record probably 10 years before I was signed to Virgin, just with me and mates because we wanted to do it. And ever since that point, which was like 90. 394 I'd sort of been around musicians and seen people making things seen people distributing records and so it was one I think when I came up with um, the Whitney Houston and Kraftwerk thing and did the whole thing and got it distributed that was like out in the real world you know this was no that was kind of it had such a huge impact um, and that's actually where Virgin found me through through that buzzing that name was girls on top so yeah did they think that you were the next big thing and you were the kind of quincy jones of a new new movement uh yeah i think well i wouldn't <laughs> oh they were sorely disappointed but no they were um yeah i think it was it was actually i remember at the time people didn't know it was so cool bootlegs were so cool which seems crazy today and everywhere and they were on the radio and they were written about in like the wire and at the same time you know your pop press would be covering it it was everywhere but i don't think there's an idea of what it could be so they sort of signed me i wasn't very expensive to sign and i think they wanted to they wanted to clear the craft work and whitney houston thing mm. um and then it was like well what could this what can this be really and um at that time who else was doing it? like soul wax hadn't put anything out apart from you know their original mashup stuff um and it was like what what could this become so it's kind of like a discussion i think you know mm. they didn't i didn't think they i don't think they had much to lose because it wasn't expensive mm. um and but they knew you know there was a creativity that could involve old recordings yeah yeah all right so it's kind of like a way of recycling existing intellectual yeah. property I suppose I got a few offers actually and the thing was about Virgin all the other offers were basically do a, a mix album with our catalogue and Virgins were like oh this is something we can make some something new here like Steve Brown the A&R he was really good and Philippe Scoli who's the boss saw it as like making art you know somehow yeah. and it was yeah, like it is. It was it was kind of like don't you don't need to just go through Virgin's catalogue. It's like what are your ideas? And it was kind of like well, we've got to make something bigger. We can't make something cool because it was already starting to bubble. You know, the, the Sugar Babes record hadn't come out, but I think when that came out, it was like well, you can't go backwards. You can't make something small and trending. It was like well, let's try and make pop records, which is kind of what I was. The aim was anyway. You know, big vocals and synths, and and the only thing that I found really difficult was because I was signed as an act, Girls on Top, and then there was another band called Girls on Top who obviously weren't that keen on that. So I think they trademarked it and maybe, you know, they they put a stop to it. And then it was like, ah, uh, so what are we gonna what are we gonna be? And then it was like, oh, everyone's going, well, it's gonna it's got to be Richard X, hasn't it? And I was Richard then X like, versus. And then it was like, oh, no, because I knew exactly what that meant. It meant more focus on me, and that's not really me. Um, but uh, then the act sort of name was out the window. And then, they, then it, But then it sort of fitted, you know. It was like it's probably been a good thing. But then you think about people like, you know, Calvin Harris and the, that entire swathe of people who came from the dance scene yeah. to turn into 
megastars, really, in his case. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think... mean, you don't really, you don't get a sense of, apart from through his music, you don't get a sense of kind of frontman personality or anything. It's just a brand, isn't it? I think that no one else had really done. Calvin was around shortly after I started, but he was very much. I mean, he's a singer, so he's he is a great frontman. I think. I mean, he's kind of. I like. I do like his records, and he. I don't think dance music needs the personality to be super successful, but it helps with him because he's funny and he's he can. Mm. He started singing on his tracks from day one. It was kind of more like an electro pop thing, yeah. the first album, and then it was a few years later when he started doing the big stadium stuff. But yeah, I think Mark Ronson maybe had a sort of yeah. collaborative yeah. album around the same time, but obviously he's he's done uh, much better than me. Um, yeah. So do you see yourself as an artist primarily? Um, I, I think I'm probably more now a producer with an artist mentality. <laughs> the worst of both worlds. But yeah, I think because um, I when I'm writing or when I'm in a project that I like, I'm still putting myself into it. I'm not just... I think it works best when there's a bit of me and a bit of the artist. If I'm just doing what they want to do, well, I don't normally get into those circumstances. So I feel like I'm continuing my artistic yeah. place. I, I, I uh, you know, doing all these interviews and everything, it leads me down various philosophical uh, routes, which is, I think that record companies, in an effort to maximise profits in the late 80s onwards, decided that they didn't really want to pay the going rate for a lot for the as an as the norm for uh producers like myself and other people that were around at that time yeah. uh, and so the fees started going down a bit the fees for remixes started going up a bit but also the producers they wanted to be they didn't want to pay extra for a programmer for instance they wanted the producer to be able to program and so what happened was that people like me who loved my job and i was good at it uh basically i could have sat there at the back of the room with a with a cigar on going <laughs> i like that i don't like that hold on i'm just going to ring up a bass player uh, or I'm going to play, you know, a, a, a very simplistic synth line or something. Those kind of producers who had a kind of outer attitude started getting less and less employed. And so that's what I've got a theory that that's why we've ended up with stuff that's more generic, because there's less of an outer attitude. And that's why I asked you, uh, I wrote down when I was doing research on, on, on you, I think you are still of that... You know, you can identify your style of records very clearly. You may not want to be a frontman, but your style is very identifiable. And I think that's we're losing that in contemporary production. Hmm. What do you think? I think, um, yeah, I mean, for me, if I didn't, I, it's not a job. Is it? Well, it is a job because that's how we earn our living. But it's like if I wasn't doing the music, what's the point? Like, because that's what I want to do and I want to be involved in writing and creating the sounds and making the the track and stuff like that so i'm that's what i want to do um beyond that i think uh, um, maybe also from where you started the tech has just come along and mm. i think i was unusual by like i think in like the early noughties when i remember i remember going to like one of the liberty x programs and i had a early a laptop then and i could i re-edited the backing track and stuff in the studio because it was too long and things like that and that sort of being able to make stuff with a laptop 
in an envi any environment and all that stuff was still quite unusual. I bought, you know, Pro Tools a bit later than that. Mm. And it was still a bit unusual to have people with that amount of tech under their control, not having to go to a studio. And that's, mm, yeah. and I've always had that sort of thing where I have the instruments around me and I want to be involved in the sounds. Um, but now everyone does that. It's over the last 20 years, you know, it's every, everyone's got a bit more of that, I think. It's kind of probably gone looped back round from your from your day. There's a lot more one person producer. To, uh, there's less production teams, I think. There's more one people doing the music stuff again. Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the best things that I, I ever did came out of a situation where I did. Uh, uh, I was the kind of like the benevolent dictator, and then I'd have a an engineer who did all the kind of grunt work, but was also contributing and feeding back on ideas. And then the musicians, and then you could then you're in a comfortable position enough to help the musicians express themselves. They have the confidence because they can see you're a professional team with musical intelligence. And I just feel that like this kind of atomization of people sitting in front of their, you know, like I am now in front in my studio with everything in the box pretty much. Mm -hmm. And it is, is in one sense very good, but uh, in another sense, it's, it's, I miss, I miss that kind of, mm teamwork really and um anyway well no what you've described is something i do i mean like when we have been in rooms or up until you know pre-lockdown and stuff i work with pete hoffman who's a great engineer and mixer and it was often me and him i might have written the song with the artist separately but when we came to recording it was always good to have someone who had a good ear as well you know yeah. kind of different didn't have to get involved in the production chats but might have an opinion that i valued over 15 years and stuff like that and then the musicians again you know it's great using musicians um that setup is more expensive <laughs> for record that's the companies. problem isn't it a lot of the time people don't think it's needed but actually i did a record for will young last year in lockdown and we had like five musicians all remotely and their basically their involvement saved and made it a good record because mm. I, I noticed actually every time I whatever keyboard I play or whatever piano it always sounds like me and I think having that having that thing where it might be the selection of chords or just the way you voice stuff and sometimes you find yourself just really bored with the way you have the skill set you have what you do and then you know on the there's a keyboardist Julian on the um uh christian rather on the on the album who's just had a great lyrical style on the piano and keys so he was part of the team but he would do something i would never do and i would hear stuff that he'd done and then revert to my other side of um you know production chopping what he's done up or rearranging it in the computer to suggest a different kind of way or copying his midi notes and making slight changes and that was the collaborative thing that one brain uh or you know wouldn't just do so it's back to this team but yeah it's it's it is a I, i'm fascinated by how you made records in the 80s because it was i've read up a lot of that in fact another thing i used to do was read a lot of magazines and books from the library and stuff to pick up these techniques because they were so alien you know and um yeah i only say it particularly alien to i mean i do a lot of teaching now but it's particularly alien to this current generation i mean they they've got no idea of the idea that, for instance, if you didn't finish a, a song in the studio, you had to write down all the settings of everything. Mm. 
not only would it cost a lot of money, but you'd have to you'd spend two hours just getting it back to some semblance of what it used to be like. <laughs> you know, I, and and they can't comprehend this stuff. And um, so, tell us about your songwriting process. How, how... Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not. I'm probably more known as a producer. But actually, most of the stuff about bootlegs excluded has involved me writing because I used to write songs when I was a kid. Um, and that was something that came from like being inspired by early league songs and mm. early Daniel Miller productions like Depeche and Fag Gadget especially. Um, so I had this very strange style where um, I sort of sang on four, I had my analog stuff, sang on four track tapes, terrible vocals, uh, wrote, the, wrote everything, generally didn't have choruses and I realised I picked this up from OMD who in fact picked it up from craft work where they'd have a riff as their main you know you know the gay or whatever there you go there's there's your chorus it's, a, it's an instrumental bit so all my all my songs when i was young generally didn't have choruses and then i think it was just something i returned to probably didn't because the dance music came along and swept me away and that's what i was listening to and i sort of stopped writing songs for a long time and then i think when i came back to the to the girls on top era and doing my music and being signed it was like well you know let's get back into that and something i'd always dabbled in and wanted to carry on and actually it was a useful thing to have again we could generate our own material to to add to this mix of electronics and r&b and stuff like that so i had a few singles around that time after that where i was i was writing you know or writing with a, a friend or a Hannah Robinson, a great songwriter that I met around that time. We did things like Rachel Stevens, Some Girls, which did quite well. And then we had sort of more um, unusual uh, records like Annie, um, Chewing Gum and things like that, where we were, we were all writing together, or me and Hannah wrote Chewing Gum. And it's kind of like got a bit of that 80s sensibility, maybe a little less synth pop and a little bit more, you know, R&B or break beaty or whatever. Um, we'd, we'd use different sounds. And so my, my thing, I suppose my songwriting is kind of a bit like magpie-ish as well. I wouldn't say I ripped things off at all, but it was, <laughs> it was a referentialness in my stuff, a kind of yeah. like a, bit of a, a knowing, clever, clever, which annoys a lot of people. But that sort of thing where you're, you're kind of quoting from a musical style or era, you know, like a lot of my stuff was 80s inspired, obviously, or Marauder inspired or League inspired. Um, Actually, I think the, the league don't have a distinctive one-thread style that you could ever really nick. I think that's something actually I noticed. I was sort of inspired by the songwriting, but not. I don't think you could just like nick a thing and go, "Oh, there's a." Well, the, the, the thing is, dare, isn't it? I mean, that, that's that's what most people identify with the, yeah. uh, the uh, Mark II. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of lost its way for a bit. I think uh, I, I really liked Human actually, but that was Jam and Lewis, who I think of fucking geniuses frankly <laughs> um and um i've got some very interesting stories about those recording sessions oh, which yeah. i can't share with oh. listeners unfortunately oh, um but um i'm trying to get them on the podcast because i think they they deserve a huge amount of credit for mm. how they used el electronics in pop music um i think there was a thing that uh, Billy McKenzie said to me once, out of the blue, because that's the sort of thing he did. He said, "Martin, you've got a, you've really got a pop heart, and um, I think you've got a pop heart. Mm. I think in a lot of ways we're quite similar. Um, in terms of we get on well with people, we make 
singers feel comfortable within the context of what we do. I mean, when when you uh, work with all these people, I'm just going to read a few out here because there's so many of them. Hold on a second. Um, <laughs> you can ask me who's in tune and who's not. Yeah. No, 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 no. There's no, there's no gotchas on this. No, no. Um, I mean, you worked with Jarvis Cocker, didn't you? You worked with. Um, I mean, obviously, the the famous things are the you know our friends Electric Freak like me and Alex O'Neill and and, and then you 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 I tell you why you are you're a animateur. I love that word. A what? I didn't uh, hear that. Animateur. Oh right. Um. Okay. I'm. I I create some. I'm yeah, a... you're like a kind of electro diaglev. Okay. Uh, you bring people together. You make things happen, but also you're part of the creative process. Yeah. It's, it's interesting good. what you say about the, the pop art. I th that's probably true of me. Even when I'm doing more dancey stuff, I I think uh, the song at the heart of everything is probably what draws a lot of my stuff. If it's not a song, the, the structure and the way the hooks are played. So if it's something more dancey, maybe it's not a full song. But actually, one of the secrets of production, uh, you'll probably know, is... Uh, forgetting about all the gear and, and your techniques is if you, if the song's there and if you finish the song, there you go. There's your record. It might not be the best record in the world, but it won't be the worst. And yeah, it's just get like, on with it. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of when I'm doing these writing sessions. Back to the songwriting, really. Is um, you know, let's get through. Don't worry about that snare. We even more. You don't have to do any of that now. It's like let's get let's get sort of vibe going, and let's by the end of the day we'll have a song and we'll know if we like it or not. And that's, that is the most valuable thing for me now. Um, so a lot of the sessions now, one day just because of people's schedules. So you, you know, you've benefited from technology, making things quicker, but you, I still want to, I don't want them to leave if I'm not going to see them again without having something that we can at least talk about. Not just an idea, because everyone's got thousands of unfinished ideas. So if I get the song at the heart of what we're trying to do done, or mostly done, we can always revise it then we've got something that we can build on. And exactly. That's, and that's, that's all, the, all the time. If someone brings me a track to produce and I'm not, I'm not a writer on it, I will be like, you've got to finish that. What's, where's that bit? Why is that bit not working? You know? <laughs> so that's like, the, that's like the free bit you get before you get commissioned. Mixed. Yeah, exactly. I can't work on that because it's not finished. But you've got to, yeah. I mean, the, one of the key things, there's two things that I have a problem with young songwriters nowadays. One is they don't finish things because they don't feel confident enough to put their marker in the sand. You know, it's like, oh, well, we can kick the can down the road. Well, I'm mixing all sorts of metaphors here. <laughs> you can kick the cans down the road forever, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that to be the case. And the other thing is the things that, you and I, and and a lot of, uh, uh, and I'm not putting myself up there with classic songwriting, but classic songwriters have, is an intuitive uh, understanding of hooks mm. and what constitutes a hook. And I'm absolutely amazed at how this is not part of the DNA of a lot of young singer-songwriters or dance producers now. They understand it from a very basic level, like, say, for instance, a lot of EDM-type stuff has all those things that go, like elephants or whatever, you know, all them weird filtered kind of... They cut That's hook, as far as they're concerned. They probably downloaded it from, from uh, you know, some fucking... What's it called, that? Splice. 
that's right. Yeah, and all that stuff, <laughs> and Apple loops and all that. So, but I think you and and I and many other people who were writing songs in the 80s, not only understood structure, but the nature of the function of hooks throughout a song. And the ex example I always give is... Um, Let's stay together, T Tina Turner. When we were producing that, there is no kind of three or four second point in that entire song where there isn't some kind of hook going on. Mm. So you've got the call and response with the guitar and the vo and the main vocal. You've got obviously the backing vocals coming in, and then you've got a fucking baritone sax and all this stuff kicking off. And I think you intuitively whether you acknowledge it or not, understand all that stuff. And that's a large part of what makes things popular, I think. Mm, I think it still exists. I, I mean, I also have the other side of that, the, the loopy one kind of phrase vocal, because I probably because I come from equally a dance background and listening to that. I think I un understand a bit of both, but I prefer the song and the structure because it takes you from A to B. It, you know, as we know, yeah. the, voice, the voice in the mix is still probably the most important thing unless you're making some underground club music. And, and what the voice is telling you, generally the song, the way it builds, the way it's structured, hopefully the good hooks is, is the thing most listeners come back to. You know, we all, I always try and remember this when I'm on day two of a drum mix. And it's like, oh. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I, it is something I like. I, I, to be honest, it makes my life easier. If it's got good hooks or we're making, we're trying to make the good hooks, or we're just trying to get a structure that that works. And, you know, I, I don't mind just keep doing those. But yeah. I also like things like, you know, where Thomas Van Gelser invented and Falcon and all the French lot just created these looping sounds, you know, under the name together, where you just have one phrase going around for seven minutes and just generating another sort of hook, another sort of hypnotic thing where, like, the most minimal dropout of a kick or a hi-hat suddenly had this huge disproportionate effect i kind of appreciate that but i don't do that so it's it's like you know not something to do but another interesting thing of the way songs are written now is, is you probably know in a bit like my bootleg stuff there's a lot of unfinished songs i mean that's another interesting thing what is a what is a finished song and i mean i don't do any teaching or anything like that so i don't i normally come across people who can do a song but there's a lot of unfinished songs that enter this acapella void of a sort of other world where they float around from producer to producer until they find a home. And a couple of mine have, you know, I had one last come out, which I quite liked, a song I written seven years ago in a session with an artist. And then, you know, they weren't on that label anymore and it hung around for a few years and someone heard it and then put a different beat under it, sort of remixed it, changed a bit of the harmonics. And now it's a new record. Still got a song at the heart of it. Um, but yeah, so, so a lot of these things sort of float around and even, you know, I just had a request for like, have you got any spoken word two phrase hooks what? From, from an A&R? So this is like... Go, go to go to Audible and download some more. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's like, I quite like it in a way. It's like making resources, you know, for, but we, we always try and finish a record, but sometimes, you know what it's like, the A&R doesn't hear it or, you know, it's it's suddenly everyone... Something Here's happened. another question. Oh. What do you think about the the state of contemporary A and R? Um, I I I think a lot more of it is done by management now than it used to be. I think it's still, because you have a lot more like hybrid 
artist who is own label or is partnered with a small label or partnered with management through an artist label services, you kind of have a smaller group. You might actually more likely get an opinion from those sort of people or the same equally they might just give you air if they if they don't like it but yeah i think i used to probably do 50 50 indies and majors in my productions and things that needed a and r stuff and it's probably more like 10 percent majors now because they don't do as much smaller development stuff so you're less likely to be working for them more likely getting feedback it's never it's very rarely musical a and r feedback it's do you know what i mean it's it's very it's very vague it's normally like why can't this be more like this record <laughs> like when i was signed to virgin i was great because you get like steve was really good and actually you, you learn from listening to what people you know a musical a and r feedback on you know not just stylistic points but things like structure or things that you know you might have got lost because you've been spending a week on it and then someone else comes and goes oh this make it so much better and I took that information a and R knowledge into the next set of records I did so yeah it's not um they're they're still around a and R's but um there aren't that many of them I mean a lot of them are employed to kind of the younger on. ones are employed to kind of trawl through, you know, social media accounts, aren't they, or SoundClouds, or whatever. yeah. In terms of finding talent, I, I, yeah. I always think of A and R as the more like the friendly, hopefully friendly advice that you get to get a record finished. That's what I think of good A and R. You know, so let's we've got it. What about this? What about that? Isn't it like producers used to come? become a and r like back in the day like that, that was sort of a, a a step from them to come into they knew how the records were made so maybe they could advise the record companies i think what was it martin russian wasn't he a, an a and yeah, i mean in around about the late 1990s and early 2000s i could see which way the wind was blowing and it was really more like the american model where they wanted to offload all of financial and time risk onto the producers to find artists yeah and then they just cherry pick the ones that they thought were going to make money and you end up earning not very much out of it well i think people are probably surprised to find out how much producers songwriters the whole of this is 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 like a spec economy it's like you're expected to yeah do... not for me it ain't. <laughs> yeah i know it's, but it's like in the world of songwriting you know and this is the problem because you know, for songwriters, they're not really getting a fair share, etc. But they're also they, they don't get paid for turning up. You know, I've had young songwriters who have worried about buying the the travel card to get across to the oh, session. Like it's, it it's just breaks but that's another. Up. It is it is crazy. The economics of it are, are pretty bonkers, and always but always have been, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, so here's a good question for you. Uh oh. <laughs> um, who who's your who 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 did he enjoy working with most as a producer, co-songwriter, whatever? Um, uh, I, I still work with Hannah Robinson. Um, she's right. a great songwriter. A really, a, a good thing about songwriting is um, when you when you enjoy what's coming out of their mouth, when they're just ideas and they like what's coming out of your hands and whatever you're playing and stuff. That's always good. So I enjoy that. But I always like having a laugh. Uh, and even if you're making a serious record, a sort of a, a, a lighter levity kind of feeling, not 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 without doing the work but just so I had that with like Annie I've had that with Will Young I you know I enjoy working with him he's a great artist and like that's a 
you know we've done like three records now and we we're very different um but we kind of work well really well together um pete hoffman on the technical side i still work with him on mixing and when there is an engineering thing to do um i might have to look at my everyone let me just say everyone because i wore a politician i actually i actually can't think of anyone i've had where a record has actually come out um i can think of only one terrible session that i've had probably go on spill the beans i won't i won't tell you oh boo yeah it would sound very ungentlemanly (laughs) does that mean it was a woman uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Um, I like the quote that you, or I think it might have been somebody writing it about you or something you said, where you said um, you regard each song as a potential single. I really like that. Yeah, I think it's it's a, I probably said that before the Spotify revolution. And what I mean by yeah. that is um, at one point it, it was like to cut to the nub of, whether this is a good record, I think, you know, that that was the, the, the song being, as we were saying, being the heart of it. And if it wasn't, what could we do to make it a single or better? Yeah. But yeah. then there's, you know, I, when I always used to think of singles, I used to think of things about energy. And I yeah. do think a bit about radio. And, you know, that's something that probably keeps me employed because some of my you know productions still get on the radio and stuff like that so that's it all comes back to song and structure and things like that but i think what happened in the when the spotify and streaming revolution took over everything is is, should be a single meant something else it meant there was no room for a lot of other music unless it is something that's formatted in a singly way for the spotify world which is slightly different from from the radio structuring perhaps you know um, you know, you might have read about things like intros being ditched and stuff like that. So yeah. you kind of, I think now I probably should amend what I've said um, because there should. The good thing about making an album is there's room for the singles. You think about that, and then the room for the more experimental pieces if it's that sort of record. You yeah. don't have to worry because you have this balance. But in a Spotify world where it's track by track, and every song is expected to get on New Music Friday. They expect a certain thing. It is human create uh, curated, but you're not going to get your seven minute ballad on there, really. So, so here's, here's another interesting question. I think, what is the brand? How would you describe the brand of Richard X? Oh God, because that's where. No, no. I mean, I'm not. This isn't, a, this isn't a, a facetious question. I'm, I'm serious, because really, I can speak. From personal experience, when you go into record companies, you are really selling yourself as a yeah. sound or a brand or a process. What is yours? It's, How would you? Like, it's probably a more. Um, it's probably based more on my production ability than my sound at the moment, because you you kind of sound goes in and out of fashion. You you amend your sound, but ultimately you're kind of associated with a certain era. Um, I've probably had two eras, you know, in terms of like the stuff I was doing in the early noughties and that kind of slightly raw electronic thing, bit of R&B mixed in there, that was big influence. And then after I did Will Young's Echoes album, which was like a little bit more like adult contemporary synth pop, it was that sort of gave people another ear on what I did, which is a little bit more, um, I'll use the term radio too, but that's not a diss. It's more like the song again being more 
yeah. less about you know me putting arcade game sounds and bit crushing everything and making it exciting and raw no one wants that sound you know no one would have wanted that in 2011 coming up to the 20th anniversary we might start hearing it again and then then it's a sound thing so i think now my ability i can get a song out of your artist i can probably make it into a record is kind of the selling point it's not like the most exciting selling point i think there's a certain I'm not cool, very not cool, but there's a certain credibility that I haven't messed everything up and I've done some things that, you know, people know they've needed me to do something and I've done it. You know that sort of thing where you've, you, you've got to be professional to be asked to yeah. do an, an album and you can't mess it up because you like the people, you like the artists, you've got a deadline, you've got so much money, which may not be, I don't mean so much money, I mean you've got only got so much money. Yeah. And so those sort of things... They're few and far between, but if you haven't made one, it's one of the hardest things for a young producer oh, to, yeah. to do. Now, unless it's with some artists they've grown up with, no one's just going to go, we've got XY signed artist who's top 40. Why don't you do 11 tracks with them? And that, that just doesn't happen. So you, it's your reputation, really, for not messing stuff up. Uh, so there you go. That's a real low selling point. <laughs> it's a low bar to say. Yeah. But it's true. I agree with you. And... Uh, and do you right? So when it, I'm fascinated with this producer thing because I think the definition of it has changed a, a lot over the years. When you go to have an initial meeting with a record company, mm. there's kind of two approaches really that I, I I used to use. One was I can do anything you want me to do, mm. and and I can do it well and professionally. Or, and I think these two, if it's a Venn diagram, they kind of overlap a bit, to be honest. Um, or you can go, I want to form a bond. I'm, I'm, you know, without being an arsehole, you're saying I'm an artist. I know what I'm doing. I'm also a very good producer. And you can't say in those words, but you have to couch it in. Uh, and I want to form a bond with the singer stroke artist. And it's I'm going to make it us against the world because that's the way I used to uh, work, and and so therefore to enable that to happen, I need as little intervention from the record company as possible, from you the record company, uh, and we will present it to you and then you can give us notes or whatever. Well, how do you? So how do how does your process work when you know when you're working to? brief essentially from a record label now um I've, i'm probably lucky i've been given i can't think of a record where i've been told what to do really like, i'm really uh, because maybe i've turned those down before they've even got to that stage yeah yeah yeah. it's been so open and part i've been part of the discussion that's in a way why i say i still feel like these are partly you know i'm putting my all into these records um so i'm very uh, my relationship with an artist comes generally from like i say songwriting i might have met them first in the room and we've done you know some things that we've liked and so actually a good example i did this band of skulls which is um uh more of a they come from a rock area and we just mm. did a couple of writing sessions because they were looking to do something a bit more outside their usual zone and we did a couple of songs and they were on the record and then i produced some of those and again this setup of it being slightly more independent we could do what we wanted and what the band wanted you know so russell and emma were really open-minded 
it, none of it felt like a struggle. I mean, you've got to bear in mind, some of these albums can take three, if you're working on it all the time, three or four months is probably, yeah. you know, what you'd spend on something now. Um, you've got to like the music, you've got to like the people. And uh, I think a lot of the projects I would have got around the time when I was having hit top 10 singles coming from Majors Inquiries would have been, oh, you know, we've got this artist and here are your songs. And I don't think, I just wouldn't have done it. I just wouldn't have been interested in it. See, this is the answer I hoped you'd give because that's exactly the attitude I, I, I took from the start because, you know, I can't take, I'm really not very good at taking direction at all. Anyway, um, you work with Rasheen Murphy, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, I love Rasheen. She's great, isn't she? Yes. I haven't seen her for a few years, but I worked on around the time of Overpowered, that era. Um, yeah. But weirdly, I'd actually met her five or six years before that when I went to Ibiza and I was sort of kidnapped by P. Diddy, who took me... <laughs> uh, not against my will, there's not kidnapping, but I, I had a very unusual early session when I was signed to Virgin where the boss rang me up and I was at a mate's birthday and said, P. Diddy is looking for some hot producers. Your name's come up, go and see him. And he was in Nellie Hooper's studio. Right. And uh, him and just loads of random people. That's where I met Khalees, actually. She was there with him. And I just brought, I, I had a keyboard in a sleeping bag because I didn't have a... Any, any way I just put it in a taxi, went there, and um, uh, and then had such a strange session. Like just those sort of sessions are so crazy. Like just musically and random and all night and noisy and and then he was like, "You're coming to Ibiza," and so I went to Ibiza and did some work with Diddy and Khalees there. And then I, they took me out. I think my one night they took me out because they didn't want me with with them. And we were in Pasha and suddenly there was Rasheen and she was explaining she'd climbed over the wall of a yoga retreat <laughs> she'd gone over there for, to get some space but she'd had enough and she actually escaped and ended up in Pasha and that's where I <laughs> and it was like we were in this VIP story. it was really and you know I was like I knew her records I was like what are you what, what are you doing and she was like oh are you the only normal person here and I was like yeah probably and we were in this roped off square in the middle of Pasha with everyone just around us just looking at us I mean, not looking at me, but looking at Diddy yeah. and, and all the stars. And like, it was very weird. Anyway, we sort of chatted and then I, I met her again when she was making that album. And we did a few, we did like a few writing sessions, a couple with Hannah Robinson. And I think there was two that ended up on the record. Um, but yeah, great, great personality. And good to see, you know, as someone who's probably blossomed more outside the major label system. I mean, she started on a sort of indie, but a biggish label and then went through EMI. And then her record's been really interesting ever since. And, you know, that dance sensibility in the Sheffield, keeping the Sheffield, you know. Dance the people. Yeah. Keep the face, etc. Um Yeah. And what about MIA? Hmm. She was someone I met through... Um, just like when we were going out on the scene and she'd made this amazing record called Galang, which was part of, um, uh, she produced alongside Steve Mackey from Pulp and Ross Orton from Fat Shockers and various, another Sheffield yeah. lad. And uh, I'd heard that and it was amazing. And it was that sort of thing where our cross, there was a good crossover of, of genres in that early noughties where electroclash, techno, post-punk, yeah. retro stuff, lots of lots of things were crossing over and it was like 
she was into dancehall. She introduced me to lots of Jamaican stuff. And we made like a handful of tracks, and then she was signed to XL, and they 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 ended up on there. But she's she's a very singular artist, and you know, I again, like her. I, I like her stuff quite quite a lot. Um, and um, John Carpenter, tell us about that. I haven't worked with John Carpenter, have I? I would have remembered that. It one. says on your Wikipedia you have. Have I? I, I maybe he did a remix or something. Oh, and maybe actually, did I, uh, did I put it on the compilation? I think oh, yeah, that would be it, yeah. Because yeah, I, you were, on I the, think um, you were on the same compilation. That's it, you're the Back to Mind, Volume 17. Yeah, what was it? The Let, uh, the Let Me Go was on that, I think. I, yeah, uh, that what a great track that is. Oh, who did that? <laughs> Who's this, Heaven 17? Great, I might have to check more out of that, yeah. I'm quite happy to, to be arrogant about that particular track, yeah. <laughs> um well, we're coming to the end of this. It's been, oh. uh, it's been, it's flown, hasn't it? I always say that, but it really has flown. Um, and I'm now going to ask you the stupid questions at the end. Oh no! You know, the smash hits questions. So, here we go. Uh, what's your favourite film? Um, no, uh, well, now you've just mentioned John Carpenter. I'm going to say Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Do you know what a soundtrack that is, by the exactly. way? Exactly, and also the Warriors. Uh, Soundtrack as well. Very lot, I mean, the music is just part of the. I think when I first saw Assault on Precinct 13, mm -hmm. I'm just going to choose, choose that one. But the um, it, it would have been at school, and it's it's quite shocking some of the some of what happens in that. And as and I think as a teenager, you're like what? And then the sound and I, it's one of those films. If it's ever on, or I just catch a bit of it, I'll just watch it. Oh, absolutely, just, absolutely, great so soundtrack. I'm going to say that. It also, it's a good. What's one your favourite John Carpenter soundtrack? Interesting. It's probably that I put if I, I that yeah that being on my compilation. It's just so empty and it's got these springy drums like this yeah. tick tock. Like it's just I don't know what I think. I don't know what that the drum machine is. Probably best not to know because then you get it and then it won't be the same. But yeah, it's like exactly. hit a patter of like oh it's fantastic. Love yeah. that. Okay, what's your favourite book? Um, Do you, are you a reader? I'm not. I'm. I am. I'm a consumer of like information like i still read the sort of books like product like talk about busman's holiday production books like i would used to read when i was a kid you know just because yeah, yeah. actually you were in, i think you were in a few of them oh, I was, talking yeah. about your ams sampling and stuff like that so i read things like that and i generally don't read fiction i read autobiographies and what's there yeah me too good? me too yeah steve jones sex pistols book that was good yeah yeah so that was um, i think that's a current fave uh, I think I'm the same as you, really. I listen to a lot of audio books now because uh, I don't have time to physically. <laughs> um, TV show, past, present, uh, series, individual um, show. I think the influence of of seventies and eighties Doctor Who. I can't escape that. I'm not. I don't really watch the. the it's a different show these days, so it's not not for me. Um, but things like uh, I do like. Um, funny things. Curb, curb your enthusiasm. Oh, that's I, funny, isn't it? Yeah, that sort of thing. Mm. I would sit and watch. Or um, uh, Steve Coogan. Uh, most of his stuff. He was on your yeah, yeah. Cast and things. That like was that. a fascinating interview. I have to say, it was yeah. Anything like that, which is doesn't. I, do, I similarly, I don't have the time or attention span to do a whole series at the moment. Of right, right, right. Um, other musical artist or composer. Mm, no, this is, that's that's the trickiest one, isn't it, for someone who? Well, just one of them. 
just one of them. Um, who am I? Uh, let's say the collective members of the Human League over uh, the years. <laughs> the the five is in All the post. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. An epiphanal moment in your life, like a kind of light bulb moment. Um, I what was I thinking? No, yeah, I suppose apart from like maybe like when I first made a record with my mates and we shared uh, one side of vinyl in like '93. We could only afford to buy one side, and we did the whole. It's it's so obscure this record. It's not very good. Sorry, lads. Um, <laughs> But we all had a track each, you see, because we've right. and so that one was like that. Let me know I could do things. I think after years of reading about it, and ju I just we just did that, and it was like, oh right, you can just you can just do it. And yeah, so yeah, that was yeah. Probably like um, do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? Um, no, 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 no. Well, I think it's, it's an ambition to want to just keep going. I think mean, sometimes it's like the last couple of years you've made it's a lot of people have been like, well, can you still, can we still do what we do and like creatively? And I think that's just probably for me, you know, just being able to carry it on in some form or some refreshment, refreshing form of creativity. Yeah, just want to do that. Have you ever done film soundtrack? Um, I've had stuff synced, but no, not not like composed for for film have it's you a, never it, worked a picture then no? uh i've worked for picture when i've had like some uh music <clears> that they've wanted to adapt or stuff like that so yeah you know cut into videos or stuff like that no yeah. but no not i think because you're you're either in that world or you might skirt around it with a with a sync um right you know, right right, right. Going i just find it i i find that i'm surprised that you you're not interested in that because well if anyone's listening and wants to drop me a line no and... no i get get behind me in the <laughs> fucking queue mate no fucker will employ me to do anything for film anyway um um where are we which of your own work are you most proud of um i would say my Whitney Houston and Craftwork um, bootleg, and because the sleeve and all of that, I think that was like you know you, you know you made something that's just really good. Yeah, yeah. And it's not about ego. I prefer this one because I wrote all that. I think that's probably the best thing I did, and that was one of the first things. Yeah, I agree. It was really good. Yeah. Uh, if you hadn't been a musician or producer, what do you think you'd have been? Um. I would have probably been on the periphery of music in a music-related studio job for a bit until I probably couldn't afford to live anymore. Or <laughs> if I hadn't gone and got out of where I lived, I could probably, you know, quite happily have just been in a supermarket. That's, you know, it's... it's I did a, that. Yeah. It's kind of like that could have been what I what I do. No, just to anyone. But I think it's coming from the north. You kind of like... At that time, coming down to London was so like eye-opening, and the opportunity mm. divide uh, is still huge. You know, yeah. you can't you couldn't do that up, up there at the Is there a song that, and it's a bit, uh, it's couched a bit strangely. This question, so it's not what is your favourite song, right? It's it's a song that you wish that you'd have written. I mean, one that you just somehow has got a uh, a, a real connection with you that you think, oh, God, if only I'd done that, if only I'd thought of that, or if only I'd, you know, is there anything like? I know it's a difficult question, but um, 
Oh my god! I think there are about five that Jimmy Webb has written, for instance. Oh, right. Okay. I, 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 I think it'd be something like like probably a, a distilled pop sort of thing. Like uh, I tell you what, I really like, and I heard it recently. It reminded me, and I thought these things like our lips are sealed. Um, Jane Weedlin. Yeah. And, yeah. She wrote it with Terry Hall, I think, because there's two different. I just think that's an amazing song, like, yeah. and I like. Well, this week I'll just say it's that. But it yeah, could yeah. Be and and um, this is a back uh, a follow-on question. What for you when you first hear a record? Is it the music or or is the the lyrical content that grabs you? Uh, it's probably the music, to be honest. And it's, uh, I, I'm more likely to be grabbed by anything if it's not in my field. If it doesn't, oh, if yeah. the less, the, if it's more like indie or rock, I'll, I won't dissect it as much. That's what I kind of help find it, myself. Can you? It's like, no, oh, exactly. Yeah. So when, yeah, an, an indie song that's just like got some energy, and I will just listen to it as a piece of music, enjoy it before I start going. Where's that kick drum? And you just, it's, it's one of our curses, isn't it? But yeah. Um, uh, it's bigger curse for me because we're working in three-dimensional sound okay. all the time. I just walk into a space and I immediately—it's like one of those, you know, fucking minority report things. It's going on. Oh, it's like reverb time two point six. You know, early <laughs> reflections, and it's—I just can't help it. It's just every time I do it, and uh, I, it get it bugs me. It's a bit like being synesthetic or something, where you can't control it. You know. Um, and finally, what's your favourite mm. synth? Favourite synth? All right. I am surrounded by a lot. And I would say, can we? are we doing currently or are we doing all no, time? No, whatever you want of all time. You don't even have to own right. it. Oh, you don't have to own it. For what? For my history with it, I'd say like the SH-101. Oh, yeah. Because it was one of the first ones I had, and it was one of the first ones that made allowed me to make the sounds that I heard on, or, you know, Roland-y sounds of yeah, early yeah. synth pop. Currently, I really like the Sequential Prophet 6, if I can have two. So that's that's like a modern... Are you, are, are you sponsored by anyone? I'm not sponsored by anyone. I do... Um, I, could introduce I, you to, I could introduce you to Roland, if you're interested. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've, I've in particular, got... <laughs> the uh, Roland Cloud virtual sense thing. Oh yeah, I've started using that, and a lot of producers have been using that. And actually, I mean, I've got what have I got here? I've got the one hundred six, the sixty. I've got. I mean, there's a lot of Roland in here, and they sound fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, you know, you do question whether you need what we used to have, but so there's something can, about as we. I can know. confirm that there's definitely. Uh, an awful lot of them that don't sound anything like the originals. I mean, like there, there's a version of the System 100 on the Roland Cloud, which yeah. literally sounds very little like. The yeah, I've, I've, I have. Do you know what? Actually, I bought. I've got a System 100 here and the 700s because I think of, of the. Obviously, because of what you are yeah, yeah. doing. <laughs> <laughs> I still use them all the time, to be honest. Um, I like it if I can get them in because a lot of the songwriting stuff is so virtual and that's a benefit for for um, stuff and and then you, yeah. more more on the production stuff you you know the Jupiter Four is not going to come with you to a writing session is no. it really and definitely Saturn. not a Jupiter Eight which is heavier than Saturn. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, what an absolute pleasure it's been, Richard. We should oh, uh, we should hook up sometime and uh, yeah, it would be nice to see. Uh, you have some fun. I'd like to show you the 3D sound system and see what you thought about it. I remember. See, I think you kindly showed it. Were you in um, like Brixton Way at some point? That's right. Yeah. Oh, you've seen it already, then. Yeah. Well, no, I think you, I think you were just setting it up. I remember there was like a you had a joystick and that's it. Yeah, still got it. Yeah. Still got the joystick. Yeah, cool. Uh, we just, in fact, we've currently got a big exhibition on in venice in a palazzo on the grand canal um all about water gods around the world and the importance of water to our future and climate change okay. and all that stuff so um yeah that's a bit of a we should, we should um i was thinking we should because you've done you're coming up to 100 now podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's it. yeah i think we should i think all your guests should gang up on you <laughs> we, get some, we get some gossip and we get some tips and we get some ideas from you. I think that'd be well, good. there's plenty of gossip in my new autobiography that's coming out in August. Oh, what a seamless link to a bit of plugging there! <laughs> August the 25th, and uh, yeah, it's all proofread and everything now. All the lawyers have gone. No, you can't say that. That's clearly oh. that's clearly defamatory, etc., etc. Are you going uh, to you can guess who that might be about. Oh. And um <laughs> are you going to go out and about to Yeah, yeah. We're going to uh, we're arranging some stuff now and um originally, of course, it was meant to come out before COVID. Yeah. And there was uh, I got approached by a guy who organizes literary tours. And I was going to be doing 35 dates in various kind of community centers and small theaters around the country. And that all fell apart, of course. That entire business fell apart. But uh, no, I'm going to be doing at least Sheffield in London, and and I'm doing the Louder Than Words Festival. You know the Manchester thing um, in November. That'll be good. But uh, yeah, I want to. Uh, I want to. It'd be great to get on the telly. I don't know how to do it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll uh, make my own docu uh, my own um, kind of documentary about the whole. The whole thing. Oh, the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do uh, an installation based around everybody's voices and the things that I've learned, and maybe even do a book based on that. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Anyway, thank you for doing this today. Oh, brilliant. Well, I look forward to hopefully see you or maybe come and see the book stuff at some point if I don't see yeah, you before. Yeah, yeah, and come and see us play live. You'll be our honoured guest if you want to. When's the next? What's come the along. Uh, it's all, I can't remember. It's all on the hem17.com website. Uh, we're doing our first ever American tour. Oh. Headlining. First ever? Oh. First ever. Yeah, we never used to tour back in the day, did we? Right. Okay. Uh, and so we're doing that in September, which is going to be exhausting, but amazing. Um, we've, we're doing uh, the first date on the tour is Daryl's house, which is Daryl Hall's venue. That he's oh, put his name to, and um, it's quite an intimate venue. And um, we've put together a version of She's Gone, uh, which I think is a great song. I love their songwriting anyway. And um, we so we're doing the Heaven 17 version of that, and Glenn's right into it. He thinks he's a rock god now, ever since the David <laughs> Bowie stuff. He is a rock god, fantastic. He does oh. like he, d he does like high kicks and everything. And <laughs> Just waiting for the power slides to kick in. Oh, wow. Anyway, all right, man. Brilliant. Thank well, you look, so much. Catch up, and yeah, we'll hopefully see you soon. And uh, many, many hits to come. But for all you, of us. You <laughs> hit maker. <laughs> all right, man. Cheers. See you Bye. Bye.
Richard, Richard X, very uh, enlightening kind of uh, discussion, I think. We think very similarly about a lot of things. Um, and he's a doer, you know. I think that's part of what, you know, coming from the north of England. He's not so much a theoretician. He's more of a, 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 a he, he does things and then, and then analyzes them afterwards, which I think is really interesting. I mean, he, he, he's got his own label, Black Melody. Um, and he just tries things out, you know, do it, finish it, let it go, move on to the next thing. And that's why he's done so well at this particular career. He's worked with a lot of people I really like as well. Um, Saint-Étienne, Rasheen Murphy... Will Young, well, I'm not so sure about Will Young. Um, done lots of remixes for different people. And, yeah, Future Pop, how about that? Um, anybody want to contact me with comments on the podcast? Encouragement, we all need that. Uh, electronicallymartin at gmail.com And uh, please consider subscribing to my Patreon site, which is called Electronically Hours. Uh, for the price of a coffee or a pint of beer per month, you'll get exclusive uh, content. You'll get uh, what else? We get you get closer, uh, more direct contact with me, and conversations even. Um, and um, we're looking at merchandise at the moment and stuff like that. So you do get good value for money. Also, you enable me to keep the podcast free for everyone. Uh, the main podcast, uh, free for everyone and um, to support this. I regard it as a series of historical documents with some very important people in the music world. So, um, and yeah, thank you very much for those of you who do. I will see you next week with another amazing guest. I'm trying to up my quotient of women and people of colour. So if you have any ideas for that, please email me um, and uh, particularly if you've got some means of contacting them. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Have a great week. Bye. Monica, oh my god, Jatau, Jatau Taiti, Jatau Taiti, I think. Wow. Oh, Lithuania, right. Uh, hi, Martin, love the podcast, been raving, encouraging friends to check it out, looking forward to each Friday to see who you got on for the next lovely chat. It's really inspiring to know there's so many different approaches to music, and that helps me be less harsh on myself, knowing there's no exact right or wrong way to do it. That is 1,000% true. It's really comforting as a budding songwriter. When conversations drift off from the music topics, that's probably my favourite part of it, as it gives a great sense of, of the people you have on and who they are outside the music world, and, of course, how it all ties into, uh, ties into it as such. Fab, fab, fab. Some of my suggestions. Boris Blank, yep. Mark Mothersbaugh, I know... Um, 
we were friends with we were friends with Duo. We had the same management company in the eighties in America. John Carpenter, I would kill for that. Juan Atkins, likewise. John Carpenter would be so. Cool. Uh, I literally would kill for that. John Carpenter. I love John Carpenter's film soundtracks. They're amazing. Juan Atkins. Juan Atkins. <clears throat> right. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Monica, for your help. Uh, this is Graham Smith. Hello, Martin. Japa ja- Jansen is recording. Sorry, <laughs> Jansen is recording right now, so not doing interviews. But oh, the door is open. This. So this is all about. Um, sorry, it's a follow-up email from Steve Jansen. So I need to follow that up. Sorry, there you go. No worries. Uh, let's do another one. Uh, oh, it's a long one, this. Ash Arcadian. Do you want to do it? Uh, let's go. Firstly, thank you for the podcast. I came across it in May, and I'm still catching up. Um, Join the club. Yeah. Um, I was a teenager in the 90s and fell out very quickly with the music at the time and found so much more excitement in the sounds of the more experimental things. Um... I was lucky to have a second-hand record shop in my hometown, Northampton. Um, the 80s scene sized me up straight away for the kind of thing I was looking for. Uh, it was there that I discovered the early Human League. Um, uh, in the end, I met a friend who was the same as me, and we started making purely electronic music with digital audio workstations and virtual studio technology plugins. Um, favorite synths in terms of sound are the Rolo Juno, Rolo, uh, the Roland Juno 60, the Roland SH101, the Yamaha CS80, the Nord Lead, the Mini Moog, and the Prophet 5. Fair enough. In terms of guests, it was great to have Telex on. Um, I have a real connection with the Belgian New Beat stuff. Um, so Patrick Cardenis and Daniel Bressanuti would be really fascinating. Also, Bill Lieb and Reese Fulber. I bet they are fans of yours. Two guys from Nomenclature love their stuff. Good title for a band. What does that mean? Nomenclature. Yeah. It means the naming of things. Right. Also, Daniel and Johan from Carbon Based Life Forms. <laughs> That's another That's great name. Uh, others could be Cozy Fanny Tutti, yeah. Brian Eno, yeah. Julian Hamilton, and Kim Moyer of The Presets. Moyes. Moyes. The um, presets. Don't know who the presets are, do you? No. Uh, awesome stuff, and so pleased you're doing the podcast. Best wishes, Ash. Thank you, Ash Arcadian. Richard Monham. Hi, Martin. Only recently discovered your show and loved it. I've been in catch-up mode. The most recent episode being Pete Wiley. It took me back to my student days in Liverpool in the late 70s, early 80s. Anyway, it reminded me of the show I went to at the Empire in 1982, I think. It was Japan's last tour, and I thought either Richard Barbieri or David Sylvia might be interesting guests. They must be the most requested of all guests, I think. Mm, This is from Roger. Hi, Martin. I hope these strange times find you and yours well. I have really enjoyed listening to your podcast, and it gave me the courage to contact you. Um, 
I fall into the category of a musician that has spent more than he has made, but my passion is undiminished. Good. I have a song that has potential, and I just wondered if you'd have time to listen to the song. I can send you a link. Really enjoying the podcast. I'm about three quarters of the way through. If I don't hear from you, I wish you continued health and success. Thanks, Roger. Um, Well, send it. Send it. Yeah, send it through. Thanks, Roger. Just looking at this. Okay, so Tony P Radio Show. Sorry I'm so late getting to the gig that is electronically yours. So pleased all episodes are there for the listening. Still, I'm rubbish remembering these things and hadn't listened to many podcasts at all. A friend reminded me of it and planted a memory. Okay. We were in the Enterprise pub across from the Roundhouse in Chalkfop just prior to your show playing the first two Humor League albums, and Gary W. said he would languish in a bath of weekend, bath of a weekend, and listen to Electronically Yours. Now, there's a usage. You know, you can have, like, perfume candles. And, uh, Quite often when I'm actually proof listening through the interviews, I do it in the bar. Do you? Yeah. Crikey, that's a horrible thought. Yeah. <laughs> um... Splish, splash. Okay. No, but seriously, it's part of your sensory world, and uh, I appreciate it if you, you know, if you... Actually, it's good. I mean, it's a long time in a bath, that, isn't it? An hour. You're going to come out really crinkly. Mm. Um, since moving to Isle of Wight, we don't have a bath, it says here. So I'm denied the, that luxury of a, of, a, to the of, of a weekly bath. But, but I've now started listening to the podcast. That's probably better. The one with the Ellie ja- the one with Ellie Jackson and the next one with Glenn and Paul are brilliant to listen to. I guess we're at an age now where reminiscing becomes an art form, if told correctly, and you have this down to a T. Are you saying I'm old? Anything about that late seventies and early eighties period I love. Uh didn't see any early human league shows, blah blah blah. I hate rushing things. New albums these days these days I take my time getting to know and it's not like the old days when we play an album until the grooves wore out, it's true. The stylist just slides across copy of Sparks and Indiscreet and Sparks Indiscreet and Human League's Travelodge. Travelodge <laughs> Genius. I was just wondering Sorry, it was just wonderful to hear those songs played live. Hope you recorded the shows, fingers crossed. Um I think we did record the audio. I'd forgotten all about that, to be honest. Um, you weren't allowed to record it, were you? No, we we did record it, but it's, we can't. We can record it, but can't we can't put it out it. Yeah. Uh, without paying a lot of money. Anyway, love and respect, Tony P. Thanks, Tony. This is from Neil Briggs. Hi, Martin. Loving the podcast, which I discovered via the Andy Bell episode. Love the idea of Seven Deadly Synths and the idea of getting back Vince back on. Um, if when that happens, could you quiz him about his synth tank that he used for the 1992 Phantasmagorial <laughs> Entertainment I went to tour. see that that tour, yeah. What was it? It was basically, they're, they're, always, they're very highly theatrical on stage because there's only two of them and a couple of backing singers. So right. They always have like a kind of big stage set and on this particular tour... He always tries tries to find interesting ways to house his synths or his instruments or whatever. So right. in this particular instance, it was a fake tank. 
Right. With oh, synths oh, in really? it. No and way. he actually, it was, it really could move across the stage no and way. stuff. Yeah. That's sick. Yeah. Um, uh, I have it on good authority that everything was played 100% live from the tank, which, if you don't know, was also able to drive around the I stage. I don't think that's true. But anyway. Really? Um, I don't know for certain. Uh, my friend and I went to that tour on our first ever concert at 15 and have ever since pondered uh, the thought that if one of those synths above his head were to fall, he'd have a nasty, he'd have had a nasty interview. Telling me. Here's a good point for those of you who never owned any old analog synths. They weighed an enormous amount. The heaviest one that I can remember that was like, looked like a normal keyboard. Not modular ones. Um, like a normal stage keyboard was the Jupiter 8 was just ridiculously heavy. I mean, you know, you could argue it could take two people to lift it. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Nice. Um, um, <clears throat> it would also be lovely to hear you both talking more in depth about the making of I Say, I Say, I Say, which is an absolute masterpiece. Thank you. Uh, lastly, I had completely slept on the BF, BF album Music of Quality and Distinction, Volume 3. But I was intrigued by your mention of the cover of Dreaming by Andy and was absolutely blown away by it. I probably would have continued to miss out if it had not been for it being mentioned on the I, podcast. We should call this the electronic rabbit hole <laughs> of the uh, the uh, podcast. That'd be a good because it really is like a starting point for a lot of people's musical explorations. You should get a name for all the people who listen to the. You know how like. Um, Adam Buxton calls them podcasts. Podcasts, yeah, come on. I, um, I, I, that's oh, didn't we say when we were thinking about the Patreon name, we were going to call it something like the Nodes or like something, the to, nodes. Do, something, something to do with um, uh, electronical. The Nodes. I love that. It's quite good. Uh, the Nodes or the Knobs. The Knobs. The, no, 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 not the Knobs. Um, anyway, thank you, Neil Briggs from yeah. Devon.
Thank you.